have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. There are a lot of organizations whose mission is to change the world, and they've got jobs to fill. Getting the right people in those jobs can be the difference between whether they succeed or not. Claire Kittle Dixon is the executive director of Talent Market, where she specializes in recruiting people for careers in free market groups. Claire, welcome. Hi, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, James. Who should work in free mark in the free market research and advocacy business? Absolutely anyone who is passionate about the ideas. Um, I think there's a preconceived notion that only takes we only accept wonks, <laughs> but we need all kinds. Um, we have placed people from a variety of backgrounds, private sector, academia, government, um, nonprofit sector outside of the free market space. And I think about 66% of the people we place are actually from outside of the free market movement. So the, the long and the short answer is anyone who is passionate about free market ideals can work in this world. Uh, you said that takes all kinds. What are some uh, atypical uh, things that, that free market organizations want besides wonkery. <laughs> wonkery, that's good. So interestingly, uh, I'm glad I'm glad you set me up with that with that question because I think people assume that our biggest talent need is policy people because that's what we do. We're think tanks, right? And that was my um, misunderstanding when I came into this space. But it turns out that our biggest need at Talent Market is actually fundraising. So um, I would say fundraising is the first need followed by fundraising and then maybe followed by fundraising after that and then fundraising. So uh, it's, it's fundraising by a mile. Roughly a third of our openings are in fundraising. At any given point, it's, it's always fundraising leading the pack. Um, the next biggest need is communications and media, and that hovers around 20% of our openings. So you can see how far and away uh, fundraising is leading the pack when it comes to to needs. And then policy openings only account for about 12% of our openings. So again, this is this is kind of mind-blowing for anyone who's coming from outside of this space because again, they assume, oh, it's a bunch of policy walks. And if you'll indulge me for a minute, I've been wrestling with this for, for 13 years. Why do people think this is true? Why do they think policy people are all we need? And I think it's because when we when we open up the paper, I still read the paper, or we turn on the television, I still watch the television, um, we see the policy people. Those are the people who are giving the interviews. They don't they don't interview um, you know the chief development officer, right, or the head of communications. They're interviewing uh, the guy who knows about tax policy or the gal who knows about transportation policy, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the people we see, and then we assume, well, that must be that must account for the talent needs, but that's actually not true. So, so fundraising is our biggest need communications. And then we do need policy people for sure. We need legal people. We need managers, et cetera, but fundraising is our biggest need. All right. So fundraising is the biggest need, uh, who should become a fundraiser and how do you get into the business? <laughs> oh, I love this question. So fundraising is incredibly diverse. And I think people tend to assume, Oh, fundraising. Those are the people who go out and beg for money. And if you're anything like me, you, you think back to like fifth grade when you had to sell cookies so you could go on that school trip 
and you dreaded it and you would wait until the last day. And then, and then as the deadline approached, you would go to your neighbor and you would sell like 10 boxes of cookies to your neighbor. Maybe your mom would buy a five boxes and then you would be done and you would barely make it to the class trip. That's not all fundraising is. Um, first of all, it's not selling cookies, but anyway, you do ask for money sometimes, but there are so many different kinds of positions within fundraising. So there are major gifts officers who go out and meet with uh, donors, but there are also people who run development programs. So managers, there are grant writers who are fantastic writers who put together grants for foundations. There are foundation relations staff members who build relationships with staff members. There are people who do donor research. There are people who do donor cultiva- cultivation. The list goes on. Digital fundraisers, direct mail fundraisers. So um, the the short answer there is anyone can get into fundraising because the skills necessary for fundraising roles are so disparate. Okay. Who should, uh, how do you get into fundraising then? Oh yes. You ask a sub question. I'm sorry about that. So um, (laughs) I will, I will answer that question uh, in a few ways. First, get connected to talent market if you are not (laughs) already. And that's something I would say, not just for people who want to get into fundraising, people who want to work in our world, get connected to talent market, talentmarket.org. You can email me directly, but please do reach out, connect with us, get in our network. And then we can help you find a job. But if you specifically want to get into fundraising after you connect with Talent Market, um, if you are a newbie, right? So let's say you're just coming out of undergrad or you're a recent graduate, I would say just apply for entry-level positions. There are going to be a lot of them. I can tell you this because we're working on them now. And if you're committed to the ideas and you put together a good application package, and certainly if you've done internships in our world, if you've done other things that sort of prove you care about the ideas, there's a good chance you're going to get the job. So if you're if you're new on the scene, just start applying for jobs. If you're more experienced, if you're a mid-level or, or senior level professional coming from outside of our space, it is a little trickier. And I will tell you, this is one of the things that gives me great heartburn because I want us to expand our talent pie, but it's not always easy for groups to hire someone who has a higher salary. Um, who hasn't yet done fundraising, it's a risk. You know, they're not sure if the person's going to like it. They don't know if the person's going to be good at it. So um, if if I were someone who wanted to make that transition, I would, I would do two things. One, I would start getting uh, some training. So Leadership Institute offers some fantastic development training. I would go there. I think a lot of it is virtual as well. I don't think you have to necessarily be in person, although sometimes you might have to be. So I would get training and I would try to learn about um, development. But then two, I would start building my network in the Liberty space because if someone knows you, then they're more likely to take a chance on you. And they say, well, okay, Claire doesn't have development experience, but I've gotten to know her over the course of months or years. And I know she's you know, smart and capable and I'm going to take a chance on her and hire her in a donor relations role. So those are the things I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you build a network then? <laughs> Woo. So, I'll start by saying it has to be genuine. Uh, I think some people look at network building as sort of transactional and, oh, I'm just going to meet as many people as I can and collect as many business cards as I can. And then, and then I will have a fantastic network. Um, But I don't think it works that way. I think it's very organic or it shouldn't work that way. It's very organic and it has to be genuine. It has to be real. And it's no different than, than building a, your network of friends. That's really what it is, except you're building a network in our space. So everybody loves Liberty and and, and you can talk about our wonky ideas with everybody. Um, 
One of my friends who, who actually got his start um, at Mackinac, um, I, I won't say his name in case I butcher what I'm about to say, but anyway, <laughs> he knows who he is and, and all credit to him for this. But he talks about networking like a bank account. And he talks about how you have to put things in before you make a withdrawal. <laughs> and so, you know, he always says, be careful, if, especially if you're someone who's new on the scene, be careful going to someone who's a, an executive director of a, a nonprofit and saying, can you do X, Y, and Z for me? Or will you meet me for coffee and do this for me? You, you, you haven't put anything into the bank account yet. You know, you have to start with, with something. So, um, my advice is be genuine and be real. But the other thing I would say is go to events. You have to leave your couch. <laughs> and this is hard, especially post-COVID, where a lot of us are kind of getting used to the couch. Um, hopefully, at this point, we're starting to break away. Um, but you, you really need to attend events. There are tons of events if you live in the D.C. metro area. But even if you don't, if you're in any given state, I bet you have a state-based think tank that has great events. So go to those events. Uh, join America's Future. Uh, there are hubs and chapters all over the country. You know, do things that put you in front of people who think like we do. Um, and, and from there, it's just going to snowball. You're going to have opportunities that come up, and you're going to have to say no to them because there are so many things you can do. That's that's where you start. Okay. Uh, we talked about who should get into, uh, into this field. Uh, we've talked about uh, how to get your foot in the door. But who shouldn't get into the free market <laughs> business? What, what are some warning signs uh, for you that this person's not going to work out in the industry? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I really think the biggest thing is you you have to be committed to the ideas. And so if you're not, if you're sort of free market oriented when it's convenient for you or only on some issues, um, I, I don't I don't think that's a good fit. I. I have interviewed a number of people over the years, thankfully not many, but, but enough who have said things like this. Um, uh, Claire, I, I'm mostly aligned with this group's mission, um, but I disagree with this, this, and this, but you know, it's a job. I'm totally willing to overlook those things. And, and to me, that's just a huge red flag. And if, if I'm doing the hiring, which by the way, I'm never doing the hiring unless it's for mm -hmm. So, um, but if it were me doing the hiring, I, I would not hire someone like that because I want someone who's absolutely excited and stoked about everything we do. So if I had to pick one trait um, that I would say would automatically make someone not a good fit in our world, it would be someone who's not truly a free marketeer, who's not committed to the ideas. How does the politics part of that work? Because some people are, you know, fully on Team Red. Some people are like, look, I'll work with anyone, do 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 anything, be happy um, uh, uh, to work, uh, to work, uh, to do policies that that wind up helping Democrats get elected. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a conflict. Yeah. Like, like, how do you deal with that? Or, or so, how does that work for for the people you're trying to place? Sure. I, I, the funny thing about this is I get to avoid the political aspect of it almost entirely. So, mm -hmm. and, and we do that because we're a C3 and, and we're not supposed to be involved in that stuff for, for various reasons, but I literally do not talk about the word political. I don't use the word political. If I ask someone about their ideas or their, their thoughts on something, I will, I will use the word philosophical. You know, what is your philosophical view of blah, 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 blah. And sometimes <laughs> I've had candidates say, well, you're not allowed to ask me about my politics. And then I said, I didn't. And I wouldn't, and I never have, and I won't. So, uh, so it's always, it's always philosophical. It's never political. Now, 
do candidates like to share things with me along those lines? Yeah, sometimes. Um, and, and usually it's exactly where you think it would be. Uh, although not always. And, and that's the interesting thing. I have absolutely interviewed and helped place people who are um, completely aligned with the organization's mission, the organization they're applying for. Keep in mind, we've worked with 200 plus uh, free market organizations, so they are not all the same. There's definitely a spectrum in terms of views and, and missions. Um, but I've interviewed people who um, wouldn't identify themselves, let's say, as conservative, but they are 100% aligned with the organization that they've applied to, and and they've done well, gotten hired, and, and, and you know uh, have been very very successful. So that is a that is an interesting um, area for us, but it's also an area we we kind of get to avoid. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the practical um, aspects of your work. Like, how do you find good people? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there's a cave. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't tell you where it's looking. No. So, so a couple things. One, personal referrals are by far and away our number one source of talent. So that alone is, is just very organic. And I cannot tell you how many times, you know, we'll get a resume form and it'll say, it'll, it, we ask, how did you hear about talent market? And they list, you know, someone that we've worked with for years, or they list someone who just got connected with us a month ago. So, um, so, so personal referrals are the number one source of talent and then our outreach and our networking. So we specifically have uh, what we call the network engagement initiative, which is designed to build talent pipelines to up and coming liberty minded, uh, professionals. So we specifically reach out to students and recent graduates who are interested in the ideas of liberty. We try to talk to internships and associate programs and fellowship programs and, and other um, organizations and people and entities that are sort of hubs of these kinds of talent. We try to tap into those uh, to those folks and then create these talent pipelines where we're getting these people into our network and we're building long-term relationships with them. So between talent markets, own outreach, and then personal referrals, uh, that accounts for about 70% of the people we place. So that's, that's how we find people. Okay. I guess the so that's the uh, finding good people. Next one is finding good roles for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume that uh, uh, that uh, the groups come to you and say we've got a, we've got a position. Fill it for us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How um, do you figure out who you encourage to apply to those places? That's a that's a great question. So I'll start by saying it's almost never as easy as we've got a great role. Help us fill this. There are about a hundred questions we pelt the clients with immediately, mm-hmm. and often they'll say, huh, "I hadn't thought about that." It, that you're right. Maybe you, you asking that question makes me think maybe we need to be looking for something slightly different. And so often we don't start from the starting point of "Here's the role, help us fill it." We start with a discussion of like a twinkle in someone's eye, or you know, "Hey, we've got a donor who who wants to help us build X. Where should we start?" So, so there's a lot of sort of strategic conversations that occur, not always, but often before a search gets started. Tell me what that, what, what those are. Like, what are some of the issues that you're dealing with? Oh my goodness. So um, here, here's a discussion I've had more times than I can count. Um, I'll talk to a startup organization or a small, you know, state-based think tank, let's say, and they'll say, all right, we're ready to grow. We're ready to add a staff member. What should we add? <laughs> Who should we add? <laughs> Development person, policy person, communications person. And, you know, 
I am the first person to say, I'm, I'm not going to answer your question for you because I don't have the knowledge. But I can, again, tell you with enough questions where you can come up with the best answer because the best answer lies in their brains, not in mine. Um, but, but that's a very, very common one. And then sometimes it's a question more like this. Um, hey, Claire, we have a budget of X and we know we need someone to do, let's say, development because we've been talking about that. Um, what can we get? for that number. And, and so (laughs) that's a fun little discussion. Well, you can get, you know, someone who's got, you know, five years of experience or you can find this or that. So there are a lot of trade-off conversations, a lot of conversations about, (laughs) Oh, I really want this, you know, person, a unicorn. I get a lot of, Oh, I want a unicorn. They don't call them a unicorn. I call them a unicorn, but they'll describe something to me. And then they'll say, we want all this and a bag of chips and we want to pay 50 grand. And then I say, I wanted to be a supermodel. These things don't always happen the way we want them to. And so you can't have your unicorn. I can't have the cover of Vogue magazine, but let's trade some things off and figure out where we can, where we can both be happy. So a lot of strategic discussions. So then you, let me get back to your question. You said groups come to us and say, we, we want this talent. How do we, how do we then, you know, go out and find the right people? So um, at the risk of boring you with, database stuff um i will say that uh, we have- no one has ever bored me with database stuff but i am a policy wonk <laughs> well we can get together at some point and talk about databases because i love databases and i love data um so so when someone submits their resume on our website we ask them a ton of questions and they're fun but it's a fun it's a fun resume form if you've never filled it out i highly highly encourage you to do it because it will be fun um, and we have a lot of comments. People who, who fill it out will say, this was the most fun job-related form I've ever filled out. And that was done with great intention. Anyway, so so when you submit your resume, we make you answer a bunch of questions. Those questions do a great job in helping us hone in on who's going to be right for a specific job. Now, there's there's always the data layer, which I just described, but then there's the personal layer that's on top of that. So So all of us who work here, there are five of us, we really do get to know our clients and our candidates. And so there's there's always the aspect of, you know, we can pull a list of people that check off all the right boxes and, and that's good. And, and we're never going to stop doing that. But we're also then going to tap into the the sort of intangibles and that what do we know and who's the candidate we talked with last week who maybe didn't come up in this query, but we know they could be a fantastic fit. So, um, so there are kind of two angles we come at it from the, the data angle and then the sort of what we know in our brains that you can't ever really capture in a database. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like one of the things that you're able to help, like if you're running an organization, you don't necessarily know what you can get, uh, like, like who's out there, how to, how to find them. That seems like something that, that you're, that you're adding, uh, or that you're helping them out with. Yes. Um, what what are what are some of the other secrets or what is some of the other secret sauce in recruiting? <laughs> well, I I like what you just said and I want to build on that for a second. We talk a lot about how we're not a talent factory here. We don't like go to our basement and like crank this giant <laughs> lever and then talent pops out. That's not how it works. That would be super cool if it did. Make my job a lot easier. Um what we're doing is building a network, constantly building a network. Uh, we think it's pretty good. It's full of a lot of wonderful free marketeers with a lot of talent. 
but in every search, we're also giving clients a snapshot of what the market will bring them. And so sometimes clients get frustrated when they don't see more candidates than they do. And by the way, clients are not normally frustrated. They're normally pretty, pretty happy about what we've done. But lately, the market has been really tight. Hmm. probably going to change when the economy slams into a wall um, here soon. It's already starting to do that. But anyway, um, it's been a tight market. We've had fewer candidates for some roles, especially for some junior level, mid-level positions that historically have been sort of easy to fill. And so clients have been a little bit frustrated. And one of the things we've tried to say is this is the market. We are not completely insulated from what you are seeing on the news all the time. Like if it's happening in the private sector, it's going to bleed down into what we're doing. We're a different world. It's not completely the same. I think in some ways we're insulated from certain aspects, but the reality is we're all living in the same market. And, and so um, one of the, I don't know if you'd call it secret secrets of recruiting, but it's helping clients to understand that if they're not getting what they wanted, it probably means what they wanted is outside of the realm of possibility. It, it's They're in an undesirable uh, location. They're not paying enough. They're asking for too many disparate skills in one person, um, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, there's also the issue of, hesitate to go down this rabbit hole, but um, reputation. Organizations that don't have great reputations struggle to find talent. And that's one of the hardest things for us because I never want to say to a client, eh, your reputation's not great. Um, and I don't know that I've ever actually said that to a client. Um, but I can say it to you in sort of a vague, abstract way. But um, but that's often the case uh, when it's difficult to, to find talent for groups. And, and so there are lots of different factors involved. And, and I think one of the great benefits we can bring to clients is helping them understand what it is they can and can't get. I hope that answers your question. Mm -hmm. What are the desirable locations? Yeah. So, so COVID threw this, uh, threw a wrench into this and, and spun everything on its head. Um, before COVID, I would say uh, if you, if you haven't seen the United van lines moving map, you should look at it. It's really interesting. Um, and for the last several years, but COVID aside, so let's say, you know, 2019 and, and, you know, several years before that, you were seeing trends of people leaving the Northeast, uh, leaving kind of the, the Rust Belt. My beloved home state, Ohio, was sometimes uh, insulated from that. But like Illinois, I mean, people just leaving in droves. Um, I think I think Michigan was also doing well. Uh, hit or miss, kind of like Ohio. I know you don't the, want The 2000s were bad for Michigan. Okay, <laughs> I hate, I hate that. Yeah. I love the Midwest. Um, but anyway, you were seeing, you were seeing people leave those areas. You were seeing people move to the Southeast. That was a, a big area. Uh, I want to say Texas was winning. Florida is always winning. Um, and there were some other States. There was one out in the Pacific Northwest. I wish I had the map in front of me. Anyway, that was pre COVID. I wouldn't say that's untrue now, but what I would say is COVID did something really interesting to people. And it made them think, instead of moving for a job, I'm going to move for personal reasons. And then I'm going to get a job. Now, I'm not saying they do it in that order, but it used to be that, that physical moves were dominated or, or, you know, dominated might be a little strong. But many people would move uh, states and cities for jobs. And now they're moving states and cities 
because they like to ski or because they want to be close to their parents or because that's where the in-laws are and they need some help with the childcare, whatever it is. So I'm seeing places that were previously easier to find talent. Um, I'll pick on Colorado. Colorado is a, is a popular place. People don't run from Colorado. I mean, in general terms, like Colorado is cool, right? Um, it's people been, like mountains. What's that? If you like people mountains, like mountains. People yep. like mountains. They, they like to ski down them when it's cold. Mm-hmm. I personally do not understand this. Um, I live where it's like 90 degrees right now and I love it. But anyway, um, I did a few searches there recently and I have just been a little bit surprised about how many people have said, oh, Colorado is great, but I'm not moving there. And it was this reaction that I didn't get before COVID. And I think it's because now people know there are enough virtual openings that they do not have to uproot themselves and their family for a job unless they really want to. So, and before it was like, well, kids pack up because I got a job and I got to go. And now it's like, we don't need to pack up unless, unless we want to be there anyway, in which case maybe we'll take that job. So, so where, what areas are geographically desirable? I still think that map holds true, but then I would say there's this layer of like a lot of people will not even consider opportunities and locations unless they want to be there anyway. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that 66% of uh, people that you've recruited have been outside of like the, the t- standard organizations. I worked in private sectors. They worked in a different industry. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that that number is, is so high because it used to be even higher as in like uh, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, no one started their career in this. You know, Joe yeah. Overton, the man behind the window, he was an engineer and a project manager for a manufacturer before coming to the Mackinac Center. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. different now. Uh, yeah. What's been lost in the change uh, to full careers in the center right space? Like uh, uh, from getting so many people that, that only got here as a second career. Yeah. So I'm so glad you said that because it's a glasses half full um, way to look at it. And sometimes I get frustrated because I want, I want more people coming in this space. I want them coming in entry level. I want to want them coming in mid level. I want to come, want them coming in senior level. Um, so it's interesting that you bring that up and I should, I should remember our roots and where we've come from and how far we've come. Um, I think one of the biggest things that our world has done, well, there, there are a couple things. Um, let me start with the simple one. There are just more groups doing this now. So when you think back to like, and I, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but when state policy network was founded, uh, 30 years ago, I know we're having the 30th annual state policy network annual meeting. Maybe the annual meeting didn't start 30 years ago, but that's not important. When it started eons ago, I want to say there were like eight state-based think tanks. And now there are like 60 some, and there's one in every single state, if not more than one. So and, and not only state-based groups, but but national groups, there are litigation centers. I'll pick on litigation centers. Groups like Pacific Legal Foundation, groups like Institute for Justice, you know, they've been around, but there are dozens of litigation centers now popping up uh, in the states, but also at the national level, sometimes very, very focused on specific issues. So we just have so many more, in my opinion, so many more organizations than we did way back when. Um, and so there's, there's more opportunity for people to hear about our work because there's more work being done. But I think the other part of it is things like internship programs. Um, they're exposing people to these ideas, you know, they're in college and maybe they're studying engineering. Um, 
But then they they learn about this internship and, and they go intern in D.C. with some free market organization and they say, huh, I love engineering, but I think I want to do this. So they're just getting exposed to the notion of advancing liberty as a career option. And and I think I'll pick on myself, um, you know, <laughs> I didn't think about it as a career option. I studied art, by the way. So um, but I didn't know about it until I was probably five years out of school and I was getting upset by what was happening um, in our country. I was really tired of paying taxes. So that's what it was. And so I started kind of doing some homework and then I realized I can actually have a career in this world. So, so I think the explosion of groups doing this work and then this, this very intentional effort to develop talent development programs, internships and, and other uh, fellowships, associate programs, et cetera, has, has created a really nice funnel of talent into our world. Mm-hmm. All right. So policy uh, organizations seek to make good ideas politically feasible and getting good people into those organizations can make them successful. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about a person you've recruited who's had a major victory? <laughs> so... It's like asking a mom to pick her favorite child. I'm not saying the favorite. <laughs> I'm saying just one really good one. Um, I'm going to cheat and not answer directly, but kind of. I'll say this: uh, we have helped place numerous, uh, dozens, literally dozens of executives, whether that's president, vice president, you know, uh, EVP, executive director, etc., um, with a number of state-based think tanks and, and national groups. So each one of those, I was, I was like thinking about this uh, the other day. I was thinking about, wow, we've helped place the you know head of philanthropy roundtable and bill of rights and the Institute for free speech and yeah, whatever. I'm not going to CEI. I'm not going to name them all, but um, it's kind of cool when you step back and, and kind of look at the landscape and say, well, we've placed executives at all of these different organizations. I think we've placed uh, more than 70 executives in the Liberty space. So um, I'm proud of all of those. I'm very, very proud of all those because I know what those organizations are doing every single day. I'm not going to name names. Uh, <laughs> you can do the math, though. You can figure it out. Uh, but I will cite a couple of very sort of personal and, and interesting examples. One, um, there's, a, there's an entity, a state-based entity, where we have actually placed every single member of their policy team. And from what I can gather, it's a, it's a real excuse my language, kick-ass policy team. It is a very tight-knit policy team. And every time I talk to the president, he's like, our policy team is so great. And talent market helped us hire all of them. And and I just get so excited. Um, and I love seeing them all at SPN and meeting. They're all like sitting together. Anyway, it just makes me very, very, very happy. Um, there's another example of, of someone we placed. And by the way, this, this wasn't all me. Like I've got a team, so I'm not I'm not responsible for placing all these people. My, my team is uh, also very responsible. Uh, but there's someone we placed at a, a free speech group who has been instrumental in doing what I'll call Johnny Appleseed work because he has helped uh, you know other organizations uh, get launched that focus on free speech. And every time we talk to a free speech group, they mention his name. Now they have no clue that we help place him there. That's not they don't need to know that. That's not relevant. But every time they say his name, we're always like, oh, <laughs> our little heart flutters. Um, so so those are the kinds of successes that that make us really really excited mm-hmm. well so when you see uh some of these people you've helped get these roles especially if they're gone come from outside from uh, different that you've helped recruit them to even think that this is a possible option for him and you see their name in the news you uh you see uh they've won some important victories how does that make you feel oh my gosh fantastic 
absolutely fantastic. Um, before I came into this world, um, I, my job was not fulfilling and it was like, it was just something I did. And I, I, um, you know, the money was fine. It was, it was a great schedule, this, that I had freedom. I wasn't fulfilled. I didn't care about what I did every day. And now I put my head on the pillow and I can think I am helping make the world a freer place. And you can't, you can't put a price tag on that. I cannot imagine doing anything else. Um, and I'm so lucky that I do what I do. And every time I, I hear about someone who's advancing the ball, um, it just makes me really, really happy. Claire, thank you for helping us shift the Overton window. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.